Hi, and welcome to the Willow Ridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. Glad that you guys are here with us and glad that you're joining us online. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 13. And in typical fashion of how we're doing with this series, also open it up to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at two different passages of Scripture this morning. Um, As you turn there, a couple things that I want to uh, point out to you or make you aware of. First, uh, if you're especially if you're joining us online, but also if you're here with us this morning, uh, what we've been doing is is we do one song after the message and then we dismiss. Miss uh, right after that. Uh, so if you're if you're staying if you're watching online, uh, don't turn us off after the last song. If you're here with us after the last song, don't turn to leave. We've got a, an announcement to make that's important about our next series that we're going to be starting here in a couple weeks. And so please just hang tight. Also, we wanted to remind everyone right that we have our drive-in movie on September the 11th. And so you're all invited to be there. We would love to have you. Now we've done um, things like movies on. The the lawn before where we gather out in the field and then it's rain and so we've had to come inside and different things that we've done. We are going really traditional drive-in movie style in the parking lot with the big screen in the parking lot for you to be able to come and enjoy a night in a movie together as a family. Um, at 8 o'clock, we're going to have something no matter what your preference is. We hope we have something for you, okay? At 8 o'clock until the movie starts, number one, we're going to have Pelican Snowballs are going to be there. And so you can go and get Pelican Snowballs free of charge. The, the church is paying for it. So we want you to make sure that you have that opportunity to go and to do that. But then also, if Pelican Snowballs isn't your thing, and coffee is, all right? We're going to have a coffee bar open so that you can come through, and we even have stuff if you want to ruin your coffee and put flavor in it, right? You can do that, or if you want to drink real coffee, which is coffee, beans, and water, we'll have that for you as well, that you can just do that. And so be a great, great, great opportunity for us to come together as a church family and to have a night where we can do drive-in movie style. Uh, I think it's a 30-foot screen. There's going to be a sound system that's set up that all you have to do is roll down your windows to be able to hear the movie. And so we're going to be playing the 2019 Lion King version, which I haven't seen, so looking forward to it. But please, please, please uh, be there with us as we kind of have this opportunity to gather back as a family, whether you gather with us on Sunday morning here or on Sunday mornings at home an opportunity for that. But then also, great opportunity. Grandparents, uh, bring your grandkids, invite your neighbors. Uh, A wonderful opportunity for us to be able to reach out and to serve our community. So we're looking forward to that. Well, last week, as we continued on in our Family Traits series, we've been looking over uh, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And don't worry, I'm going to read a couple of verses out of there, even though I have you turn there this morning. But last week, we started looking at this concept of they, not some. 
that when we read Acts chapter 2 and we read Acts chapter 4 and we see the great work that God does and people getting saved, that there's this commonality that we see amongst the believers. That when it's described what the church looks like, there's this notion of the they and not the notion of the some, meaning that there was great unity amongst the body of what was happening and what was taking place. And so as we look through this, this is an examination for us to say, is this what we, not as I as an individual, but that we've embraced as a church, as a body of believers, as we look together to press into what it truly looks like to be a family that God has called us to be. And so we see some very unique circumstances that begin to unfold amongst the early church. Now, it's important for us to remember that there was great diversity in the early church. There were people from different languages that had come together. There are people from different countries, from different backgrounds, from different races, from different socioeconomic backgrounds that had come together, and we saw this great unity of diversity. So that diversity was there, but diversity wasn't the goal. The goal for the church, which is the goal for us today, is yes, to have diversity, but in that, as God begins to work and move in the life of diverse people, of what comes from that is unity, that that's what the gospel does. What the world says is separate, the gospel unifies. And so we begin to look and see how this is played out in the life of the church. So I want to read to you Acts 2, verses 44 and 45. It said, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so what we see is this sense of community living amongst the early church that they looked at each other, they saw where they had needs, and the body of believers together said, we take care of that. And it's not a one isolated event, Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Let's begin to, to understand what is taking place. In the early church, what we begin to understand is this, nothing is mine. The destruction of the self in early church was nothing that I own is viewed as mine. So that in the church, I got my buddy Frank sitting over here, Frank and I are in Bible study together, and so if I have something and Frank does not have that, and Frank needs what I have, then, then my nature is to not let Frank borrow it, right? It's to not let Frank buy it from me. Nah, bud, you need this? I got it, man, it's yours. Take it. That's crazy. But that's what the church looked like. And it continues on. It says in, in, in verse 34 of, of, of chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as each had need. 
So there was the depth of relationship within the context of the early church that the Bible says that there was not a divide amongst them. So if there was someone who had a need at a great depth, and that they see the aspect of need, then what the church did was they stepped in because what is mine is not mine, but what is mine is ours. So how does that play out? So it means Joan and Lenny are here. Hey, Joan and Lenny. All right, so, so Joan and Lenny go through a difficult time, and Joan and Lenny are going to lose their home. And so I look at what I have, what I've been blessed with, what God has entrusted to me, and I say, but this doesn't count because they're in need. And so I sell, and I get rid of, and I don't loan it. I don't say, well, when, when, when you can pay me back, I say, no, 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 this is yours. Because what is mine is yours, and this is the depth of the relationship that we have. I say, you know what, I've got an extra bedroom in my home. And what I want to do is I don't want to just give you a room, right? I want to give you my home so that what is mine isn't just mine anymore, but that this home, it, it, it's ours, so, so come be here. And this is the depth of the community that we see. There, there's no way to, to, to try to understand anything different than this is the depth of unity of the early church. Nothing is mine, everything is ours. Now this is foreign to us, right? Like, we're, we're good at borrowing, <laughs> we're good at loaning, we're, we're good at stepping in, we're good at helping out with groceries, but we're talking about people who say, no, 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 if I've got to gut the retirement because there's someone who's in need within my family, then I'm going to do it. Now, we say it's foreign, but I'd like to argue that it's probably not. Because when we begin to understand that that is difficult for us in this context, here's a context where it's not different. Think about your family. Parents, what would you not get rid of for your kid when they're in need? We're, we're walking through that with, with my 94-year-old grandmother right now. Right? Whatever she needs, take it. Whatever she can't do for herself, Take it. it. It's mine, but it's, it's, it's yours now in this, and so have it. And so there's a notion that we begin to understand that, that parents, when it comes to your kids, right? Grandparents, when it comes to your grandkids, like, because I've learned once grandkids come in, we just skip over kids and we go to grandkids, right? When it comes to them, like, no, 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 take it all. I'll move into a tent in the backyard because of the depth of the love that I have for them. But... This is the way the church viewed each other. And I think this is how we begin to see each other when we begin to see each other as family. We begin to see things differently. Not as church members, not as friends, not as people in community together, but when we truly see each other as family. Because here, here, here's the truth, right? Emma and Grayson, my son and my daughter, that in this world, that's who they are. They're my son and my daughter, and Joan and Lenny are my friends. But spiritually speaking, Lenny is my brother and so is Grayson. But Joan is my sister and so is Emma. So do we live with the mindset of the world or do we live with the mindset of the Spirit of God? And we begin to see each other differently. 
In church like this, this we, we try to lessen what is, what is talked about in Acts, but it hit me in my face this week as we begin to see that this is what Scripture turns us to. And, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a switch that we begin to flip and begin to look at things differently in our life. And so we want to look at that and what it means to serve. To be servant-minded does not mean just doing stuff for people. To be servant-minded does not mean that we are simply completing tasks for each other, but to be servant-minded means loving each other as family. That's what it means. I read a pastor this week who was talking about this, and he said this. He said, the more Christ-like and selfless a church is, the more powerful a tool that church becomes in the hands of our great God and King for the purposes of redemption and restoration. That if we want to be used for redemption for the kingdom, if we want to be used for for redemption and, and restoration amongst our people where God has placed us, then the solution to that is not a new strategy. The solution to that is not a better message, a more impactful small group, a new building. That the, that the, the means of this is that the body, the bride of Christ, be more Christ-like and be more selfless. And that in that is where the redemption and the restoration and the power of God takes place. It says in Acts 2 and Acts 4 that God added to their numbers day by day those who were getting saved. In church, it was in the thousands. And they could lose their life for it. So what does that mean for us? What does this look like as we begin to serve people in this capacity? And what we have to understand is that we have to let Jesus be the standard. That when it comes to serving, we must let Jesus be the standard. So John 13, what we saw our wonderful cartoon about, is the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And so let's start reading in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. He lay aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So let's look at what's happening here. This is Thursday before the Friday of which Jesus will be crucified. And so as Jesus gathers these disciples around him, he's trying to, one last time before the cross, explain to them what he's come to do, what he's calling them to do, and modeling this before them. This is the time where he will implement the Lord's Supper and the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine to represent the sacrifice of what would take place. But in that, Jesus says, but I'm also going to show you something. And I'm, and I'm going to wash your feet. Now, let's talk a little bit about what washing feet looks like, all right? Because that's kind of different for us. If, if you come to my house, I'm not washing your feet, right? If I come to your house, 
please don't offer to wash mine. That's going to be awkward and very uncomfortable for me, right? And now that you know that, you, you may offer to do that, right? But here's the deal. We're talking about sandals in the Middle East. And let's explain kind of in some, some grossness what that would look like. Most people walked. Everybody had sandals. And if you know about anything of walking long distance with sandals on, your feet get dirty. Now, we have two types of dirt in the Midlands. We've got clay and we've got sand. That's not the dirt that they had in the Middle East. I want you to think of dirt not by what we know of dirt, but think of it like powder. And so now think what happens when something is wet. So imagine your feet are sweaty, right? They're smelling bad. And you're walking through, and this dirt that's like powder begins to get onto your feet and begins to, to turn into like a paste that's there. Now, the roads in which you were traveling on are also the roads in which every form of livestock, whether it's for processing or whether it's for travel, whatever it's for, they are also using these exact same roads, right? And just by the way, like the animals aren't using the rest stations, right? And no one's walking around with their little plastic baggie to clean up after them. So you go through your everyday journey, and what do you think your feet begin to look like? What do you begin, what do you think your feet begin to, to feel like? Maybe even worse, what do you think your feet begin to smell like? And let me just say, there is no doormat that's going to knock all that off. There's no wiping that's going to take away every bit of that. So when you're invited to someone's home, both to serve you and for convenience for the home, there was a servant whose job was to make sure that your feet were clean. And that the master of the house would send the lowliest of the servants in order to do this. They wouldn't grab a hand towel from a basin or from a hook on the wall and wipe your feet clean. Instead, the servant who washed your feet would have had a towel around their waist so that they could wipe off your feet once they were washed. And then the servant who cleaned you now wears your filth for the rest of their time. And this is the process that happens. And so Jesus, the Bible tells us, who has been sent from his father, takes on the role of the servant. And he does what a servant would do. And he takes off of his robe and he puts on a towel and he grabs water and begins to wash the feet of those around him and begins to dry them with the towel around his waist so that when he is done, he has bore and he is covered in their filth. Not because of what he's done, not because of where he's been, but because of where they've been and what they've done. There's nothing 
absolutely nothing in our culture that compares to this. But we begin to see the depth of serving of what this looks like. And then we begin to understand who's in the room. Who's in the room? Two people are going to be pointed out. One already has, Judas Iscariot and Peter. Peter, the one who will grab his knife and charge Roman soldiers in order to defend Jesus, but later on deny him three times. And Jesus washes his feet. Judas, who will betray him. Judas, who will sell him. Judas, who will come up, embrace him, give him a kiss, and in doing so, send him to the cross. And Jesus washes his feet. A depth of love that you and I cannot imagine. But Jesus models for us. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who, who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you were clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Peter begins, he says, but Jesus, you're above this. Jesus, it's not for you to do this. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, you're completely missing it. This is exactly what I have been sent here for, that I've been sent here in my majesty and in my royalty to serve you. And yes, Peter, you haven't done anything to deserve this, but I'm going to do it for you anyway in spite of all that you have done. And so verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on their outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Look at the question Jesus asks. Do you understand what I have done to you? Jesus says, as my followers grasp the depth of my servant love for you, grasp the intensity of my love 
for you. And when you grasp that, when we embrace that as the bride of Christ, as the family of God, how should that change your love for each other? And then Jesus says very clearly, it's not just enough that you know that I do this. It's not just enough that I've done it to you. But then Jesus says, go do it to one another that this should be what marks you. Let what I've done be how the family of God interacts with each other, how they love each other and what this looks like. So Jesus gives us the command, do it. So now how to wash feet. Let's begin to see in Scripture how to wash feet. Because here's what you're going to be called to do. You're going to be called to go to church, uh, not church, to work (laughs) tomorrow and wash feet. You're going to be called to go home today and wash feet. You're going to be called to go to your neighbors and wash feet. And if you show up, right, wrapped in a towel with a basin of water, you're going to get fired at work tomorrow, all right? If you show up to your neighbor's house with a, with a towel wrapped around you and a basin of water, you're going to violate multiple HOA regulations in your neighborhood, okay? So how do we, as the body of Christ, do something which is so foreign to us that nothing relates to in our culture? And so let's look at Romans 12. Paul walks this out for us. Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Well, we have to understand that when we wash feet, relatively speaking, in the love for each other, is that it is our response to salvation. Our serving one another, our love for one another is based in and rooted in the fact that God has saved you and that God has saved me. Paul says because of the mercies of God, that God's grace that he freely gives to us is going to be what we're called to love people to present our bodies as living sacrifices. So we've got Romans 12 and we've got Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 tells us that before God saved us, what we used our body for in everything was sin. That we're the temple of sin. Before Christ, that's who we were. The Bible describes us as objects of wrath. But now Paul says, because we've been saved, we're no longer objects of wrath, but instead were used for God's glory. So in all of this, stop using your body to sin and start using your body. Start using everything about you for his glory. Paul continues, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So it's because we've been saved, but it's also because we are being transformed. That when we are saved, what God begins to do is he begins to transform us and we begin to seek transformation. It's a 
beautiful act of the spiritual work of what God is doing in his sovereignty, and it is a wonderful picture of how we are responding to that in our will and in our desires. And so Paul says in order to be transformed, you have to be no longer conformed to this world. Now, when we talk about that, usually we give a list of sins. Don't be conformed. So don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Maybe do a few of these things. Don't do this, don't do this. And we look at that and we say, I do struggle, I don't struggle, I do struggle, I do struggle, I do struggle, I don't struggle, I don't struggle. I'm good. I got most of these covered. But what if being conformed to the world was not a list of sins, but it was a position of the heart? And that from the position of the heart that these sins came out as a result of that. So in Romans 1, Paul talks about what it means to be conformed to the world. We're not going to go back and read all that, but, but here's what he says. He says there's three basic aspects of, of when your heart is conformed to the world, and when we're not being transformed by the power of God, we can still have these tendencies resonate within us. The first thing that he tells us that we do is that we, we pursue the created and not the creator. Right? We pursue the things of creation and not the one who created them. We, we, we make little idols when the creator God is like, no, 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 stop chasing that. I made that. Stop chasing stuff. That's just stuff. Pursue after me. We begin to understand that the, that the second one is that we, 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 when we're conformed to the world, that we believe that our way, right, is, is better than God's. All right, so God, I, I know what your word says. I know what the truth is here, but mm, I think I've got it on this one. No, thank you conform to the pattern of this world. Another way that Paul talks about in Romans 1 that we're conformed to the pattern of this world is that in all things, not just in some, in all things we fail to acknowledge him. In all things that are good and lovely and pure, we begin to take credit for it. <laughs> and we fail to acknowledge him. From everything, from the sunrise to the cup of coffee in the morning, to the marriage that we have, to the love that we have for each other, to the house over our head, we look at all of these things and we feel that somehow we deserve it and we take credit for it and we fail to acknowledge him in all things. So you see, being transformed is not a list of all of these behaviors of what's there that we begin to push out and to eliminate, but it is an acknowledgement of God and who he is in our pursuit of him. And so Paul says how we battle against this is we renew our mind right right my mom used to tell me growing up right mom's here with me like trash in trash out right glory in glory out that that's what the renewal of the mind looks like the glory of god in the processing of god in the desperate pursuit of god in and then what begins to come out of me is the same things the glory, the pursuit of God, the glory, the pursuit of God, because this is what I consume, and God, in that you renew my mind, and Lord, this is who I am. And, that, and that's how we begin to love each other. And that's begin how we do begin to pursue radical love that cannot be explained in any other way, shape, or form, because it's who we are. And so Paul continues on, he says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, through many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion 
to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul says when we begin to go through this process that we understand that we're responding to our salvation, when we begin to, right, right, glory in, glory out, being transformed, that this becomes manifest within the body of believers and that you and I, what we embrace in this, what Paul had said previously, right, that we count ourselves less and that we embrace humility within the context of the body. Why? Because it's one body. And I think those are the, that's Christian cliches that we use when we just leave them at surface level, but it's true. We are one body and we desperately need each other. We do in the, in the they, not in the sum, to do what we are called to do. And so I began to think about the beauty of the unity of the diversity of the body, right? So, so I want to use the example that some of us are, are looking at and, and dealing with as we look at one another, as we see the gifts and talents of one another. There's some similarities that's there, but there's some diversity that's there, and when they're unified. So I think of the hands and the, and the feet. You know, there's a lot of similarities, I've got two hands, I've got two feet. When you look at the hands and when you look at the feet, I've got five fingers on each hand and I've got five toes on each foot. And so, yes, there's a lot of similarity of what's there. They can both bend in similar fashions, but how God uses them is going to be extremely different. Let me, let me, let me prove this to you, right? I'm going to go out to eat for lunch. I'm going to order sweet tea. How would you feel if you pulled into the Mexican restaurant, and I'm kicked back with my feet on the table, shoes off, drinking my sweet tea with my feet. Number one, please think that's impressive because there's no way I'm that flexible, right? But you're like, no, 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 Bo, that's not what feet are for. Feet are for walking on. And then I got up from the table, and I did a handstand, which again would almost be like Jesus walking on water level miracle, right? And I begin to walk out on my hands out of the restaurant. No, 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 no. That even though they're similar, there's a distinct different pur uh, purpose for how God uses them. And so for us, we're distinctively different with different gifts and different talents and different passions, with different backgrounds and different cultures. But God says, no, 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 I use all of them. But then there's some of us. And what's in our mind is, I know I'm saved. I know I'm transformed. But there's no purpose for me. I can just show up and just leave. And there's nothing that's there for me. So this week, I took a little journey and tried to find the part of the body that's useless. I wanted to test the illustration that Paul uses in Scripture. So I spent a lot of time thinking, what part of my body, if it was removed from me, would I be just good? Serving me no function now, and I don't care if it's gone. Immediately went to belly buttons. They kind of grossed me out anyways, right? But no, 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 maybe not now, but it was at a point in time then, right? So here's what I came up with. Earlobes, right? Thank you, Deborah, for laughing at that. Thank you. Earlobes. 
right? If you've got earrings, that's great, but that doesn't really serve a purpose, does it? Like it makes your face look even prettier, but you know, whatever. Like if we had to do without earrings, we'd be okay. So what purpose do earlobes? And I thought, have I figured it out? Have, have I found the loophole, right? There's, earlobes are, are useless, so, so maybe. So I went to the great medical survey of Google. And I typed in, what is the purpose of earlobes? And you know what I found out? That your earlobes and mine serve a purpose. I didn't know that. This is fantastic. Here's what they do. If you were, and please, at home, like, don't try this, right? <laughs> Here, don't try it either. If you were to cut off one of your earlobes, do you know that your body would begin to be out of balance? Do you know that you would suffer from, from being dizzy? Do you know that you'd be more likely to suffer from vertigo? Because these useless little things that hang off the side of my face serve a purpose and serve a reason. So Paul's right. Every part of the body, regardless of what they feel their value is, regardless of what they feel their benefit is, regardless of what they think their past is, has a purpose. And that when the body of Christ begins to embrace that I serve and I love because I've been saved, when the body of Christ begins to serve and love because I'm being transformed, when the body of Christ begins to see if another part of the body is hurting, that I need to respond in like. So, so washing feet is foreign to us. And the illustrations that I gave earlier, unfortunately, are foreign to us as well. But do I believe Acts chapter 2, John chapter 13, Romans chapter 12 means if Frank needs something and I have it, that I give it to him? Yeah, I believe it does. Do I believe that God's word teaches that the level of dedication and level of love that I have for my family in Christ mean if Joan and Lenny are going to lose their home, that it's my obligation to step in for them? Yeah, it does. That's not normal. It's not how we've been raised. But it's what God's word says. That nothing is mine. That it's all ours. For the good and the glory of God. Would you pray with me? God, this passage of scripture, Lord, it just hits me like a ton of bricks. Lord, it brings me to repentance because I see so much of my life that has been conformed to this world that the radical obedience that you call us to of what it means to serve is so much stronger, so much deeper Lord, it's so much more sacrificial 
than any surface level obedience, Lord, that I think that I've ever embraced within my life. That I hurt when others hurt and joyful when others are joyful. Because we begin to understand that not only are we friends, that not only are we church members, that not only are we brothers and sisters, but we're of one body. Lord, I pray for us, whether we're here at the church, whether we're at home watching online, Lord, that your spirit just speak to our hearts. Lord, reveal the, the depth of our selfishness. Lord, speak to us and, and, and show us who we are and what we're capable of. We just thank you for who you are. In your name we pray, amen. I said at the very beginning that Jesus was our standard. I want to close and read this, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross Jesus said this is what I've done for you go and do it you stand to worship Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.